Yeah. Uh, how are you doing today? Pretty good. And yourself? No complaints. Nice. I know. It's kind of like a, just like a super chill Sunday. Is it raining? Because you're in central time. Is it raining near you? Yeah, it's rain. It's like cloudy right now. Yeah, same vibe here. I'm on the East Coast. Did y'all get bombarded with a bunch of snow? No, I'm in Pennsylvania. So oh, I'm okay. a, basically like like half an hour hour from West Virginia. So we're I'm more Appalachia weather than like New York, upstate New York, New York City weather. Are you born and raised there? Yeah, yeah. I um I went to school like an hour outside from where I grew up, but I've traveled a lot, but yeah, I've stayed up till this point um, in the area that I grew up in. Yeah. I've never been to Pennsylvania before. It's one, it's on my map or my list of places to go. I want to hit all 50 eventually. I think I've hit 26 so far. Okay. That's impressive. Yeah. Pennsylvania is big. So, I mean, you could go many different directions. Most of the state is farms. So the middle of the state, there's not much going on. And then there's Philadelphia and then Pittsburgh. But it's pretty. Do you travel a lot? I try to. I mean, obviously with COVID, that changed things. But my brother's actually moving to Germany for two years. So I will probably be going to Germany probably once a quarter for the next two years at least. And then I want to do a three to six month travel through Europe while I'm there. Yeah, I look at Europe kind of like the United States. The way like you can... but. Obviously, instead of states, it's countries. You know, you can just pop through a bunch of places. But, um, yeah. It's, yeah, you kind of just got to power through. Yeah, like, especially those trains there are impressive, man, how fast they go and how many places they are connected to. I don't, I wish America had that kind of setup. I don't know That's why like we don't. my obsession when I talk to people. I'm like, guys, let's get transportation, local transportation, because cars suck. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I don't know. To me, I... And I love walking everywhere and people like sometimes I'll walk on the side of the road and people are like freaked out that I'm walking and I'm like, well, I'd like to walk and I need to get from point A to point B. So I will have to walk on the side of the road because there are no sidewalks. Not much by me. Now, do you think that there would be less accidents if they had like that kind of stuff happening? Because like there would be less like traffic, I would imagine. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's um. I just just watched watched a documentary about Arlington, Virginia. It's the healthiest city in America, and they've because they've put in more bike paths and walk pa- walking paths and have a really great transportation system. Mm-hmm. I've had an influx of a population, but a decrease in car usage. So I think we basically in America just put no effort into infrastructure. I think if we devoted uh, any amount of effort into it, mm-hmm. I think it could be really. Amazing. I just don't think it's a priority. Yeah, I saw this thing one time. It was a meme, and it had a. It was a picture of something that was built like maybe like in the early 1900s, and then something built now. And it was like no degree versus an engineering degree, and it was like potholes and all the shit in the road. But it's just like it, you know, like the stuff today, even like the stuff like the roads and bridges. Like, how long are they gonna be last? Like, that's the thing that. Take, take in consideration because like here in Memphis, we have this big bridge that connects I-40 and that's like a lot of traffic comes through, like a lot of big trucks. 
And they were saying mm-hmm. that there was a big crack in there. And so they had to stop, you know, people from going on that bridge because they didn't want people to like fall off if the bridge were to collapse or what have you. So it's just like how many of these roads and bridges that we have that we use every day are dilapidated pretty much. Yeah. I mean, probably a lot. And, um, so when ironically, when Biden came to visit Pittsburgh for an infrastructure announcement from infrastructure bill, that was the same night that a giant bridge collapsed in Pittsburgh. (laughs) So yeah, so it was actually kind of a good thing because it spotlighted and, uh, I can see it in my city. They're making major infrastructure updates. So I can see I don't know if it's directly correlated to that, but I do think there is a lot of money going into like general infrastructure, like bridge repair, road repair. Unfortunately, a lot of the repair here too is um, uh, moving everybody to Columbia Gas, which to me just kind of seems like they're just trying to do a last minute cash grab before like the environmentalism, you know, uh, uptick happens. And basically we're going to move towards more clean energy sources. Mm-hmm. But you know, hopefully with that, that part, there will also be a part where, you know, general infrastructure is being repaired at rapid rates too. Now, do you think that say like what they're talking about, they want everybody to be using electric vehicles by X date. Do you think that Mm -hmm. we can even contain that many people on that kind of grid? That's the problem is that's why. So I was, I'm like kind of in the market for a new car. Um, Last I checked, the area that I live in, the grid uh, gets their energy from oil. Mm. So it would basically be kind of pointless to buy an electric vehicle right now because I'm still contributing kind of just as much damage to the environment. Yeah. I saw something one time. It's like somebody said, don't come to my house with your electric vehicle and try to you know charge it at my house. Go charge it at your own. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how... And the tough thing is, is when you look throughout history, America kind of got screwed by car companies because they bought out kind of everything that was good by creating these massive highways and knocking down infrastructure and knocking down like lower income neighborhoods. So it kind so obviously Ford and that sort of thing were really great for like American innovation as, as to a certain point, but then it became sort of a hindrance as uh, you know, it took over in our entire culture. Yeah. Yeah. Like so even I, like, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, like even like when I think about like people like that are for like the animals and the environment, like you're in a building that's taken somebody's like some animals land. Well, yeah. So I'm, I'm probably someone you'd categorize as one of those people. I'm, a, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm sort of a hippie. Um, but I'm I'm also a realist. I get that not everybody wants to live like me, nor should li- live like me. And I grew up on an old farm, so like, you know, my mom used to grow up eating like the cow Bessie that she raised. That would be like on her dinner table. So it's like old school. I appreciate like people that uh, slaughter animals humanely and that sort of thing. But yeah, I also think we've hit a threshold where we do have to do probably more condensed housing. Because I see it all the time where I am, where it's all this beautiful farmland that's being taken up by these housing developments that are, they're so shoddily made that like, I don't even know if it's worth it to build that house because it's probably not going to sustain, be sustainable. It's not going to stand for the next like 30 years. Yeah. 
Because it's just developers being greedy. They just want to get as much money as they can out of this plot of land. You know, knock down all the trees, kick out all the animals. And then all these people are just like living in houses that are right next toward right next to each other. And they're just really shitty houses that cost 600 grand. Yeah. I love watching HDTV and I was watching, um, I think it was like love it or list it. And these people had their house that they, they had bought like a couple of years ago. And they, one person wants to stay and another person wants to go. And then like part of their house is like unleveled. And they're like, well, why is it not level? And you come to find out they built the house on top of a river. And so it's on top of sand, like, so the house is sinking. And like you said, like, these developers would come in and just not really take in consideration long-term what the people that buy the house, how it's going to be after they're gone. You know, it's like you said, it's a cash grab for most of these people. They don't give a fuck long-term. Exactly. And a lot of them hire out their crew. So their crew often is not super experienced with building houses, per se. Like, they have general knowledge, but... It's tough to build a kitchen from scratch, to have level walls, to do all of those things. And you kind of can't phone it in, especially Mm -hmm. when somebody is spending that much money. Like that is to me, I don't know. That's crazy to me to buy a house that you kind of know is going to like fall apart in five years for that much money. That's wild. (laughs) But I'm like old school. Like I want to buy an old abandoned house and fix it up. So I'm like on the total opposite end. So I'll probably never get that sentiment. Now, you said you grew up on a farm? Yeah, by the time I was born, it was pretty much retired. But um, we had an old barn. Like, I, my grandfather, we still had, like, a giant tractor. You know, you'd cut the fields. We'd go, you know, fishing in the pond for fish and snapping turtles. And so it was, like, by by the time I was born, it wasn't a true farm anymore. But, like, everything was kind of still remaining. Now... So when you would, you said you would eat the animals that y'all raised. Is that correct? I'm more so with my mom, but like we would, so like we would catch snapping turtles and make turtle soup. Oh, okay. um, we would catch fish. I was kind of mostly vegetarian growing up. So I would eat this stuff like very rarely, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, it was more so like my mom that grew up, like, you know, they would raise baby lambs on the side porch bottle feed them and then obviously like it was my grandfather's job to slaughter them so he never ate lamb ever again because he knew it made him so sad so whenever you're raised by like a parent and like my grandfather was also like majorly a part of my life growing up Mm -hmm. you're like taught all of those lessons interesting yeah like i was watching this thing on uh netflix this is zach efron thing it's like down under or something or oh i've seen a trailer for that it's actually a good show but uh, they go to this place and these people have uh, like their own farm and they're they're saying that like a lot of like the factory farming, like the animals pack down the lands because they're, you know, they're all in one plot. So they don't move them around them enough. And so it's hard mm-hmm. for the vegetation to grow back. And then one of the questions Zach asked the lady, he's like, how do you eat an animal that you raised? And she's like, well, how do you eat when you don't know? Yeah, I. I wish more people would know where their, their food is coming from, but meatpacking plants are probably some of the most private companies in the world. Like they don't let you film. They don't let you um, know anything about it. So like, that's why 
there were a bunch of people, workers during COVID that died because no one really knows how close their quarters are for their workers and the animals. So a bunch of people were dying, you know, en masse and like no one really found out till after the fact. And, you know, it's, it's been a longstanding tradition. It's, um, if you've ever heard of muckraking in the 1920s, Mm-mm. um, it's, uh, Upton Sinclair, uh, wrote a book called the jungle about factory workers working in the meatpacking industry in the twenties. And that sort of started the change in how workers were treated in, you know, those major important industries, but we haven't had another sort of resurgence of people sort of doing exposés on the meatpacking industry since then. So the meatpacking industry has gotten away with this for, you know, almost over a hundred years. Wow. So it's a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember seeing something. I want to say maybe it was Amazon. I'm thinking about, I think this is Amazon. what I'm thinking about, but like people had to pee in bottles or some shit like that, like inside getting off the line. But I think there was something that I guess a lot of people lose limbs and, appendages at these meat processing plants yeah there's it's pretty brutal and intense and everything's closely packed together from again what i've read because i haven't seen any videos about it and they electrocute the animals and their success rate is not very high so a lot of those animals suffer immensely um and it's just not the way animals should be treated to be eaten like i've You know, you call me crazy, but I do think when you eat something, there's like, you know, it's we're beings, living beings are made of 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 energy. So I think when you're eating something that hasn't has had a negative life and a negative energy, Mm -hmm. that energy has to go somewhere and you're eating it. So I don't know. To me, I think there is maybe a correlation because most of Americans are really sick. Yeah. But I, I don't know how to change that except for like. I don't know, at a government level or a lobbying level, like stopping, stopping lobbying for, you know, the meatpacking industry. So what's your current diet like now? Are you vegetarian still? I'm vegan. So I'm probably now Oh wow. more. Yeah, more. It's I've been vegan for in March, it'll be five years. Um, I'm pretty boring with food. I eat the same five foods over and over and over again. I eat like you know, Tex-Mex style. So like vegan burritos with like tofu, rice and beans, and then like Asian stir fry. So I'll do like vegetables, rice, tofu. I eat a lot of salad. I'm pretty, you know, everything I make, I try to make it taste good, but it's pretty boring and routine. So what made you go vegan? I, so my brother and I actually just randomly made a bet. I had gotten back from two trips, you know, when you travel, you just like eat a lot and you just feel kind of blah when you get back. And so we watched a documentary. I can't remember what it was. It was probably like, well, either was either what the health or fed up one of the two. And then, um, my brother and I made a, a deal, a, a bet to do veganism for 30 days. And then I just really liked it and I never stopped. Hmm. I wasn't intending to do it forever. <laughs> Do you think you'll ever go back to just vegetarian? Mm, you know, it's funny. As a kid, I never really liked meat. It always kind of grossed me out. And I never liked the feeling of like, especially with chicken, because that was really the only meat that I ate like through high school and college. And 
I never liked the feeling of knowing like a, you might bite into chicken and you might get like a bone or something chewy. And that always grossed me out, like the potential of that. So now I don't have to worry about that. So I know that sounds weird, but like for me, meat always grossed me out. The smell of ham smells like rancid to me. Mm. I, I've always hated steak. Um, it was always like chewy and that always grossed me out. The one meat I did like, which will probably sound weird, is elk. I would go to this medieval restaurant, not like medieval times or anything, but it was like a genuine like medieval, just like how people ate back then. Mm-hmm. And they'd make elk and it was really good. But other than that, when am I going to buy elk <laughs> on a regular basis? Not often. You know, it's weird, you know, like thinking about like how like if you see a dead animal, people don't want to touch it, but mm-hmm. then you'll put it in your mouth. Yeah, I think that's cognitive dissonance, right? Your brain goes, if I season this and it's chopped up, that's not the thing. That's not the cute animal that you see in the field. Yeah. I think that's most of us do that with a lot of things that we know are bad for us. Like people that, you know, I don't know if you smoke, but if you like smoke cigarettes, your brain goes, yeah, this is just something to relax me. This isn't going to be the thing that like, gives me cancer and my jaw falls off. Mm -hmm. So we always try to justify things to ourselves. So are you pretty much like clean from everything? Like even like cigarettes and drinking? Um, I don't smoke cigarettes. I have not regularly, but like if I'm at a party or something and somebody's smoking outside, I would smoke. Um, I recently did sober October. Um, I went through till the 18th of November and then I drank twice and now I'm kind of back to not drinking. So I don't know what my future with alcohol is. I think I'll always will drink to some extent, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's, um, I do want to get like a medical weed card just because with everybody spiking everything with like fentanyl and stuff that freaks me out. So so crazy people are doing that shit, man. Yeah, in weed. Yeah. Like who's who's mixing into weed? But like it's scary. So I'd rather, you know, if I'm gonna like go down that road, I'd rather do it the right way. I know it's the expensive, more annoying way, but I might do that. Um I'm open to psychedelics. Um I'm open to ketamine treatment, like through a psych uh psychiatrist or a, a psychologist. Um I don't know. I, I'm sort of at like a crossroads of like where what my relationship is to like addictive substances, mind altering substances. What do you partake in? I'll drink occasionally. I don't smoke um, cigarettes. I don't smoke weed anymore. Like I didn't smoke weed till maybe 2016 was like the first time I ever smoked weed. And uh, it just was like, I did it for a bunch like, cause it was just like a thing that I was new to. But then mm-hmm. I got to the point where I was like, oh, it's just not for me. And then, um, like, I'll do edibles every now and then, but I just don't like the smoking part of it. And sometimes the edibles, well, it's just, it. I don't know. I don't like the smell. Um, I'll do, like, a vape pen, but then with the vape, you don't really know what's in it that either. So you got to be careful with that shit. But, sure. uh, like, the edibles are okay, but then sometimes the edibles, man, like, they'll kick in, like, too long or too short, like you're, you don't realize it's kicking in yet. And you'll, you'll like, Oh, I'm going to take another one. And it hits you. 
it seems like your body metabolizes that different than smoking it. So it's a different oh, kind yeah, of high. For sure. And everybody's different. So if you're doing it for the first time, like some people, like I used to have friends that would be like, oh, just start higher and see what happens. And it's like, <laughs> no, start as low as possible and then, you know, wait four or five hours. And then if you want to get a little bit more, get a little bit more. Yeah. And then like, um, and then sometimes like, uh, like if the, with the pen, like sometimes I'll go out and my buddy will be like, Hey, hit this. I don't know what the fuck he had in his pen, but it feels like crack. Like it, it's just a weird feeling. I don't like being high around people either. I don't know. It's just, uh, it's a weird vibe. It's not, I don't know that that's not really my thing. Um, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to, uh, um, psychedelics as far as like mushrooms and stuff like that. I've done those a handful of times. I've done that. I've done DMT and I've done ayahuasca. Out of oh, three, okay. so what I was gonna say, I've I've want to do ayahuasca and DMT. I would see first what happened on ayahuasca and then go to DMT. <laughs> yeah, the first like um, the first time I ever did mushrooms, I saw nothing but a bunch of art, but I did it alone and I couldn't sleep. Like so, like once I did it, I couldn't go to bed. Which they say you're supposed to do it in nature. Um, mm. But, you know, it's it, that's a good experience. And the last time I did, I saw nothing but death. But it wasn't scary, though. It was odd. And then when it was I like did, almost peaceful? I'm sorry, what'd you say? It was almost like peaceful. Yeah, it was just like, um, I don't know. It wasn't like something that freaked me out. I don't know. It's hard <laughs> to describe. But um, the DMT was pretty cool because that's pretty quick. That's only like maybe five to ten minutes, if that. That's it. Uh, yeah, it's that they call it like a businessman trip because it's like super quick. It's the weirdest thing. I had this weird vibration go up my body that I had never felt before. They were playing this music in this house I went to. It felt like the music was right in my head. Um, and I saw a bunch of cool patterns I have never seen before. Um, and then the ayahuasca. So the ayahuasca experience was like, I get to this thing and they're like, Hey, have you done any research on this? Is a shaman asking me like, have you done any research on ayahuasca or whatever? And I was like, yeah, I have. I've like, I've seen stuff on YouTube and I've had my friends tell me, cause you know, like you always hear the stories, like people like shit themselves, they throw up, they cry, oh, yeah. they're puking and all this other stuff. Like the most heinous shit, like violent shit. And I was like, yeah, I heard. And they're like, well, they're like, uh, well, their experience is not your experience. So what they experience is not going to happen to you per se. So I was like, okay, that was kind of like set my mind to ease. And I had a friend that had died and I thought that I was going to like see him. Cause they say you can see people that have passed on. Mm-hmm. And so anyways, like I, I sit there and I get my cup and there's one lady was in the room with us. And she's like, as soon as I take this, I'm going to start crying. And she cried the whole time we were in the room. And then, um, then people just start chain react puking, puke, just puke, puke, puke. And I was like, oh, God, when's my turn coming to puke? Because they give us like this puke bucket. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there and I never end up throwing up. But I and I didn't even see the friend that I thought I was going to see. I saw another friend of mine that died and we had a conversation, but he didn't talk. It's so weird. It's hard to describe. But like. We communicated without using words. So like telepathically. Yeah, it was just very odd. And it was like a picture of him. It was him, but it wasn't him. Like he looked like he was like on a trading card and he was like black and red, kind of like Deadpool colors. Um, 
And but my favorite part of the experience, though, was the we go outside and they have this like fire pit where they tell everybody to, to throw what they want to the fire to let go of what's been bothering them. Mm-hmm. And these people were like, this this medicine's made me love myself now. It helped me beat my addictions. Um, and to me, that was the most beautiful part. Not even my experience. It was just listening to these people being healed or, you know, feeling some type of peace. Because there's a lot of people that do this stuff and or just people in general that have a lot of trauma. And, you know, like if they can have this kind of medicine to help them out without the side effects of like pills or, you know, the the other alternative of killing themselves. Then I don't see why they can't do it because there is a thing on Netflix I watched. I think it's called How to Change Your Mind. And it's about different psychedelics and how like at one time they were using like MDMA and. And uh, I think ketamine was one of the ones and mushrooms and some other stuff to like treat people with like PTSD and alcoholism and all these other things. So I don't know. I think there's some some good sides of psychedelics that they need to let people um, partake in, because I know I was talking to a guy yesterday. It's a friend of ours that we met through the podcast and he lives in Colorado Springs. And I, I know in Colorado, they just decriminalized psilocybin and DMT. So, so what are your experiences been with psychedelics? I, I should know. So I was at a music festival and somebody gave me something. I don't know what it was, but I've never felt like that before. It was a good feeling. Um, I danced like I've never danced in my life and I've, it felt like it was weird. All my thoughts were like in relation to like movies that I've seen, like everything didn't feel real. It didn't feel bad. It didn't, it felt like euphoric, but it was, it was definitely like a very weird, surreal, like depersonalized feeling. So I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know what I took, (laughs) but I know that it was nothing that I've ever experienced in my life before. So you think it might be ecstasy? No, I've taken that before. Hmm. So that's why I was saying it, it had to be maybe acid, maybe mushrooms, like a, like a light version because like everyone was taking them and they were just like, yeah, just take one. And I had already been drinking. So I was just like, sure. Why not? Cause normally if I was like more in my right mind, I would have been like, what is this? Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was fine the next day I was fine and it was like a good time. And obviously it was like a hippie music festival. So, you know, it was all just like jam bands and everyone having a good time. But so like, I don't, I count that as I took something, but I don't know what it was. <laughs> so do you know I the person of, or do you know how to get in contact with the person? Oh, no, this was at a music festival in the middle of nowhere in Ohio. So it was just a <laughs> random fucking person. I was with a group of people yeah. and I, they were taking in. So I agreed. Yeah. So I got it from somebody random, but I was with a group of friends. You're pretty trusting. <laughs> no, that was a poor, that was a, that was like a, a lapse in judgment on my part. And I, sometimes when I drink, everyone jokes and says like, I'm, I'm almost like a, a better version of me because I'm warmer and friendlier and agreeable. And cause in my regular life, I guess I'm very disagreeable, but, um, yeah, so I probably was just in like a good cheery mood drinking and I just was like, all right, yeah, sure. Now, do you wish they could bottle that feeling of alcohol without the side effects? Mm. 
No, because I think that's what psychedelics, again, I don't have enough experience, but from what I've heard, what you've said, what I've had other people tell me, the one experience I had, I think that's the answer to what alcohol kind of wants to be mm-hmm. because I think alcohol, I don't know. I think it's supposed to have negative side effects so that we're not constantly living in a different reality mm. because I think we'd all get so addicted to feeling good. That's like, um, what's that book? Uh, brave new world. They all take Soma. It's like a dystopian future book. And, um, it always makes them feel good. That's a good so way of looking at it. Yeah. If you have nothing, so you can't feel joy or euphoria. If you have no, do you know, down moments or bad moments? That's at least how I look at it. Some people might really love to live in like pure hedonism, la la land. But mm-hmm. as someone that I'm naturally sort of like, um, I have an addictive personality and I use, I went through phases where I was living like a very hedonistic, lifestyle it doesn't feel good you think it'll feel good you think living like every day is your birthday is a good feeling it's not it really nothing feels joyful anymore because you're doing everything you think you love all the time what brought that period of your life on oh just like i think most people i think you are trying to figure out who you are as a person what (laughs) what's wrong with you as a person i was trying to fill a hole you know, fill a void and until you, you know, make sure like the whole, you know, the, the bowl is completely sealed. There are no cracks. It's not a sieve. You're going to keep trying to fill that hole with things that aren't going to work. And so I was just like spending tons of money. I had a major shopping addiction. I would drink a lot. I'd party a lot. I would just, you know, I would be like, Oh, let me just like, eat my favorite foods every day. It was just basically like, what can I do to like feel good all the time? When in reality, what feels good is like discipline and like a structured life and, you know, those sorts of things. So what was the switch to tell you that this was not for you? Huh. Um, I'm trying to think of when... Well, I think for money wise, whenever I was spending all, cause I got myself into lots and lots and lots and lots of credit card debt. Um, when you run out of money, that's a literally, you have no more money to do all the spending that you wanted. So that's like a good stopping point that would, that put me into like, I think that put me into like the beginning stages of like, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. And obviously going to therapy. Um, so there was no like rock bottom aha moment. Um, but th- I feel like there were a bunch of them along the way, you know, my bank card would be so overdrafted. My car was destroyed. And then the same week I, you know, run over, a um, a, a traffic cone with my car. So my car, like, I didn't realize it for like a week. And so I was driving with a traffic cone under my car. It's like a, you know, you're living in a, a pure chaos. Mm. You know, I had really no prospects of like what I was doing with my life. Like, I had had friends come and go because like I was so chaotic. So it's sort of like a a building of things and your life kind of falls apart. And then for me too, I'd had a health, a freak health crisis accident, whatever you'd want to call it. And, um, 
I was like, it forced me to like be still with my own brain and realize like, oh, the way I'm living my life is really not good. So do you think like hitting kind of close to rock bottom was the best thing that ever happened then? Yeah. Oh yeah. I think, I think I, I think it can be really great for people if you have, like I had a support system of my family. I had a place to live. I had a place to crash. So I think it works really well if you hit rock bottom and you have like material comforts. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's like that theory of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you have like food, shelter, and like a sense of security, then you can learn from a rock bottom. If you're like homeless and don't have food and like you don't have a family structure or friends to help you, then I don't think you'll really get much out of it. But for me, it worked well. And it made me finally realize like, oh, if I died tomorrow, I wouldn't have done anything that was my dream. I wouldn't have fulfilled any dreams or any, I wouldn't have made the world a better place, which is ultimately my goal. I want to, you know, leave this place better than I found it. And I wouldn't have, if I died that next day, I would not have done really anything. So when did you get into therapy? Was this after this realization that this stuff was not for you or was it during that time too? Mm, Well, I've gone to therapy since I, God, was about maybe seven or eight. I was diagnosed with severe obsessive compulsive disorder at eight. So I've always been like in and out of therapy. Um, But I really started, so like in high school, like in college, I didn't really have valuable therapy because I tried to just be friends with my therapist and I would just kind of like lie to seem cooler, which is so sad and gross, but I did it anyway. And so then finally after that, I was like, oh, let me get serious and actually like find a therapist to talk to and handle these issues. And so, yeah, so around this time, um, so right when I, so I had had a freak medical thing where I had a, um, nasal infection that went into my ear and I got severe vertigo for over a month. So I couldn't walk. I could, my whole world was spinning 24 hours a day. So I couldn't basically do anything except sit in the dark because I was so dizzy all the time. I went to the emergency room all the time. I thought like there was something neurological wrong. And then recovery for that was basically six months to a year of basically my, the swelling in my ear going down and then me, basically my brain recalibrating so that I wouldn't feel dizzy all the time. And then my hearing had to be repaired as well, because like when, you know, your ear swells, that canal swells, sometimes your hearing can be like not permanently damaged, but like noises were really loud and overwhelming to me. So I couldn't, I could basically hear every car pass by. I could hear the TV at the lowest volume. So it was like for six months to a year, my life kind of was like, hell because I couldn't do anything. I couldn't go to bars. I couldn't even like sit outside because the noise was so deafening. And during that time, especially whenever I couldn't do anything except sit in the dark and think during my severe vertigo time, literally all I did was like, think when I'm done with this, what am I going to do to get my life better? What am I going to do to make a difference in the world? What am I going to do to fulfill my dreams? And so, uh, that really, was great for me to like be forced to kind of like reevaluate my life. And then I started seeing a a serious therapist, like your question was, and you know, now it's more of a regular legitimate habit. 
So when you said you were diagnosed with um, obsess- obsessive compulsive do- disorder, like how did your family know that you had this issue? Like what were the signs? Um, so I've always been sort of an eccentric kid. Um, I was always eccentric. and But I had major issues. So part of my thing was I had major issues with food. Texture, I would freak out. I could only eat one kind of food. And I basically, if you moved anything in my bedroom, um, I could anything at all. I could tell you exactly what had been moved and like why it had been like, I could, it was like freakish. Like if you moved a book a quarter of an inch, I'd walk in my room and be like, oh my God, you moved my book. And it would be like a meltdown. I would rewrite school notes over and over and over again. I had to do like light switches, like the classic three times. I was just a really compulsive kid. And so I think everyone around me was like, something's up. I don't know if my parents knew it was OCD, but they were like, something, you know, something's going on. And I was also really um, obsessed with like information. So I could do like the whole US map when I was three and I could do like all the capitals when I was very young. So it was like, I could like acquire information at like a weird level that a, a young child, it would be like, normally wouldn't be able to do. Now, what kind of work do you have to do to not have these habits? Is it a constant struggle every day or is it something you're able to deal with now without really thinking about it? Yeah, it's funny because all I know is OCD. Like it's basically kind of how your brain is wired. So I'll never know what it's like not to have it. But I do take a medication that generally helps with like a lot of it's connected to anxiety, like, um, especially people that have like, uh, the more traditional sense, which is like, oh my God, if I don't check the stove is off three times, then like my whole family will die. So that's Mm. connected to anxiety. I have some of that, but it's not really like a, a gloom and doom type thing with like, oh my God, my family will die. Um, but it's basically like sometimes shutting your brain down and telling yourself like, I don't need to check this so many times. I, um, if I rewrite this, this, uh, post-it, because if I write a note to myself, if I rewrite this post-it, it doesn't matter or not, because basically this is just something that you feel compelled to do, but it's not going to make a difference in your day. So a lot of it is like bargaining with yourself. And sometimes there are non-negotiables, like certain thing, rituals I do. Those are just things that I will always do. And they don't really impede my day anymore because I've worked around it. But you can also tell, like, if I'm more stressed, then I start doing things more ritualistically. I write. um, So something maybe if you were around me now, you'd notice I write every task that I need to do in a day down in order. Most people don't do that. Most people don't go need to write down shower. But I'm someone, because I'm like a ritual-based person, I have to write down shower. See, like when you say some of this stuff, it it makes me question like some stuff I do, because I know like if somebody moves something, I'll notice it and I have to everything has to have its place with me. But I just thought that was just me being neat. Or the way I was raised. I mean, does it uh, does it upset you? Does it like devastate you in that moment or does it devastate your day if you see something's out of place or do you just look at it and go, huh, that's out of place? I guess it's more of the 
it doesn't devastate my day, but like if it's out of place, I have to move it back. Yeah. I mean, I think all of us to some degree have compulsions because basically like they say some evolutionary, uh, rooted professionals say that basically like anxiety and obsessive compulsive comes from a survival mechanism we have, which is to be hyper aware Mm -hmm. because, you know, when a mountain lion would be coming or, you know, whatever animal was alive during our, you know, with our, uh, ancestors, you know, you, the person that was hyper aware was the one that was going to survive. So I think we all have it to some degree for me, it's always impacted my life pretty severely. Um, another thing that you, I don't know, you might have, or you might not, some people have it, some people don't intrusive thoughts. So like, have you ever gotten a feeling, this is going to sound really dark and weird, but, um, major tenant of OCD is like, okay, you're driving in your car and something in your brain goes, oh my God, what if I drive off this bridge right now? Or, oh my God, what if I'm, I'm cutting carrots? Oh my God, what if I cut my finger off right now? Though that's OCD. So Mm. it's basically of thought your brain is telling you to do something and you're like what like i have no desire to do that at all right now and so that's like some people say they have it some people don't but that's like a traditional manifestation of ocd yeah i've had thoughts where like i'm driving and i think that a car is going to come on the other side onto me mm-hmm. yeah i mean that might be it but again if it's not impacting your day-to-day life you might have traits of ocd just like i we all have traits of autism Mm. um so i but unless it's impacting your life um you probably don't have like a diagnosable version because most of these disorders are spectrum right no one really has like zero score so what would be some traits of autism um, trouble making eye contact, um, trouble empathizing with people's feelings, um, impatience with people's feelings. So like I have like, I don't have autism, but like I have traits of it, um, being neat, orderly, ritualistic. So like having to do things in routines, um, obsessive with information or like a specific topic. So like growing up, I used to be obsessed. There were like arrows of my life where I was obsessed with different, like, like I was obsessed with like the Titanic and then I'd be obsessed with ancient Egyptians. And then I was obsessed with dinosaurs. So like, that's a major hallmark of like autism is like hyper-focusing on specific like categories of information. Man. Yeah. That's very interesting. Now, is it hard yeah. for you to date? Um, I'm not a big dater. I honestly don't enjoy it. It feels like a job interview to me sometimes. That's another thing that's like a an autism trait is like I have a very low threshold for um, like traditional social norms. But um, no, I like, especially where I am right now, a lot of guys aren't really like my type per se. Mm-hmm. So every guy that I'll talk to, it's like there, but not quite. So right now for me, because I know how much effort dating takes, it's sort of like not on the table right now, but it's not like, I feel like I'm missing out. 
Now, granted, if I meet somebody and they're like, it's like an obvious connection, then I'll open that door. But for me, because so much of my brain power daily is taken up by like, first of all, dealing with OCD, just like getting through the day, not being super driven by, you know, the way my brain works. I've, I've gone, I've come a long, long, long way from where I used to be, but it still is, it's a lot more work than people realize. So that's like my, the thing that takes up a lot of time. And so I don't think a lot of people realize like adding in like social elements to that, like adding in dating, adding in like being really conscientious with hanging out with friends, being super conscientious with hanging out with family. That takes up like a lot of time for me. So have you ever lived with somebody? Um, what do you mean? Like in a relationship? Yeah. No. And I, that's something that I, I don't know if that'll ever happen for me. I'm very open with how relationship, how my ideal relationship would work. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be very open to a cross country relationship. Like I'm based in the East coast. He's based on the West coast and we see each other, you know, two weeks out of the month or something like that. Um, I don't have any traditional desires for a relationship. Um, I also am not a caretaker. So I have no interest in being like the traditional like wife role or like girlfriend role. Mm -hmm. So those are just things I've always never had any interest in. And also, I really don't believe in marriage and I don't want kids. So like for me, that that knocks out a lot lot of people from the roster. You know what I mean? The potential. Because a lot of people... Like, especially a lot of guys around here do want to get married, do want to have kids. And that's just, you know, not something that's really on my to-do list. So if you were to see somebody, like, for your, like, cross-country relationship, would you be able to stay in the same hotel room with them or house with them? Or would you need your own place because of some of your tendencies for, like, stuff being in order? I think for me, like, say I'm dating a guy... maybe a year back and forth we go back and forth um obviously same hotel same apartment is fine i would like it that we're not sleeping in the same bed together every night forever Mm. i'm just not i'm also not touchy-feely i'm i don't know it's just i like my space so basically like i'd have to find a guy that's similar ish to me, like someone that's super driven, academic, not touchy feely, very like, I'm also very trusting. I genuinely don't, do not want to be your adult babysitter. Go off, be free. If you make a mistake, either tell me right away or take it to the grave. Like I, I have no interest in like being jealous or anything like that. It's interesting. Like, well, at least you know that about yourself and you don't try to bring somebody into your bullshit, though. And there's a lot of people that know things about themselves, but they're so selfish that they will bring people into their bullshit and end up hurting the person because they know that they have these issues, but they want to have some companionship or whatever. And then they'll disregard other people's feelings and not take them into consideration. So at least you know, like, hey, this is not really something I want to do, and you're not actively seeking it. Yeah, I I try I try to be really empathetic to 
what someone else would feel with dealing with my issues Mm -hmm. because you know especially like i didn't have a lot of like of that reciprocal empathy growing up so i try to be hyper aware of like how could i be a hindrance to somebody and also vice versa what could i do to make up for that hindrance so like down the line okay so i have this issue then how can i you know, make up for it in some other way. Because I do think so many people in relationships literally just want to be in a relationship to have like a warm body. And I think that is worst reason to ever be in a relationship. I love being alone. I have no issues being alone. I, I never, I've never felt incomplete when I'm single. I've never felt less than. Um, so I wish more people would realize that. Does your brother have some of these same things or is he complete opposite? Oh, total opposite. He's married. Mm. He's younger than me. (laughs) I, he's always desired companionship. Same with my sister. I, I just have never, I've never, you know, followed any societal norms. I, it's not me trying to be a contrarian. It's just literally, I don't want what most people want. Hmm. Like I said, that's all, I mean, that's great that you know this about yourself, though. Like, that's very self-aware. Like I said, most people are not self-aware. Yeah. Oops. Sorry if you hear thunder. Um, <laughs> I'm in my car. I like recording in my car. And so I, uh, it's like thundering and raining a bit. Um, yeah, I, I wish more people were self-aware. And I wish more people would know what they're like, what's the word I'm looking for? What they're like, um, non-negotiables are. Mm, yeah. And I feel like most people don't fundamentally change. So when you go into a relationship expecting people to fundamentally change, that's like a kiss of death. Yeah, don't you think a lot of people see signs of people like red flags, but they just ignore them because like you mentioned earlier, they just want a body. Oh, yeah. And then they'll be like, why are you this way later on in life? And it's like, no, they you saw it. You just chose to ignore it. Yeah. And that's like most of my friends now, I can gauge what their complaints will be in like 15 years with like the guys they're settling down with. Mm -hmm. And like to me, those are non-negotiables. Like this one guy is like a hoarder. He buys like, he'll buy like three crockpots, three blenders. You know what I mean? It's like, why? I that would drive me crazy. Yeah. And that's a non-negotiable for me. Like I would not want to be with somebody that's that buys shit constantly. Yeah, what is it? What is the hoarder mentality? I don't get that. When you watch that show, it's a lot of people that had terribly traumatic events happen in their life and hoarding becomes like a like a salve, like a a safety mechanism. And like, I, I have hoarders in my family and like, you know, you, it's like a, a safety blanket and it, it, you won't be, unless they want help and unless they're willing to put in the effort, they'll never be able to kick the habit because they'll never comprehend that like trash isn't valuable. Yeah, I've been into two hoarders houses and it's I don't see how anybody could live like that. Like that would just drive me insane. Like there's places like how do you like I went to one person's house and there was literally stuff on their bed where they slept. And it's like, how do you even sleep on this bed? 
Well, that's also depression. I think depression is crazy. It can make people do crazy things and you don't even realize. Like, I think most people that are like really, you kind of look at them and you go, what is going on with you? Like what in your life is like falling apart? It's like most likely they're depressed. So do you think some people are depressed without knowing they're depressed? Like, do they not know what depression is? Oh yeah. I think most people that are severe hoarders, if they've never had really any intervention, yeah, I think they probably don't realize they're depressed. Now, do you think a telltale sign of somebody depressed is a messy room? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I, so I also, I've had depression my whole life. It gets, you can tell what my situation is by how messy my room is. So it's like, to me, it's one of the clearest signs of like, what's going on in your life walk into somebody's bedroom and you'll see their state of mind. Oh. Yeah. Cause like, um, yeah, I know somebody and they're always saying they're, they're not, but then like their room is a complete mess. Yeah. I mean, and especially too, if you're one of those people, if you have cups everywhere, bowls, do you know what I mean? That sort of thing. That's yeah. another sign of depression. So what so granted, kind of- again, I'm not a psychologist, but like for <laughs> my, in my own personal opinion, Yeah, because I know they always say, like, clouded, like, if your head is clouded, then your room would be messy or, you know, like, a a messy room is a clouded clouded mind or something to that effect. Yeah, and your brain is just, it's like your brain is in, like, the opposite of whatever two times speed is. So, like, you are so, you're moving so slow that, like, you getting food for the day is going to be, like, a big task. You like making your bed for the day would be like a big energy sucking task. So is it a chore for you to keep your room clean? Yeah, uh, that's why, like, for me, I've realized so much of my like mental health and functionality depends on how much of my routines I keep up. So I can have a day off, but if I have a week off, then it's like going back to square one. I'm in, it's like I'm living in a hovel and like I have to restart everything and redo everything. And so I basically have to be kind of always organized. And if I'm not, then everything falls apart. Man. That's like, you never think about like what a lot of people are going through. Especially like if you can look on somebody on the outside, you're like, oh, their life's in order. But then you know, know what's going on in their head or at their home. Oh, yeah. And that's why I think we need to have more empathy for other people. I, I Listen, I get it. I People can suck and be so annoying. And like when somebody is like rude to a service worker, I think that person's an asshole. But more often than not, that person is dealing with something way more than we all realize and you should kind of like have empathy for them first and then be mad at them even though it's so easy just like i've got mad at people that like are assholes too but you know once you dig down a little deeper especially when you talk to somebody that's having a bad day you realize like they're really struggling and it's you know you being mad at them isn't going to do anything to help them. Yeah. So what do you think about like the mental health with men? 
how do you think that should be taken care of? Because it seems like that's something that just gets pushed down. Like men are not allowed to talk about their feelings. And it seems like that's a contributing cause to a lot of these shootings that we're seeing. I mean, because it seems like mostly men are doing them, these mass shootings at least. Yeah, I mean, I was just watching a... So I watch these reels on Instagram. I don't even know how I get recommended them all the time, but they're like people asking uh, kids at a college campus questions. And one of the questions was, when was the last time you cried? And the girls would answer within like the week or the month. The guys would answer within like years, timeframes. And to me, I think that's like one of the big problems is if you're a guy, you're kind of not allowed to cry or show any emotion Mm -hmm. and it's always you have to be stoic and i also think that making the playing field even for men and women also helps men because they don't have to fulfill one specific role i know a lot of guys that don't want to be the breadwinner or maybe quite maybe they have like a mental health thing and they can't quite be the person that's bringing in all of this money to support, you know, like a wife and kids. And so I think if expectations were shifted so that everyone could kind of do what they wanted and what they could excel at, that it would help men realize like, oh, I don't need to be like a high value male and be this provider, be this person, because, you know, men and women can equally function and provide for themselves in society, if that makes sense. Do you think the problem is that like the wages are different now than they were back in the day and how everything's so much more expensive? So like it would be hard for a man just to be the sole provider. Oh yeah. I think that's majorly a part of it. I think to, you know, wages in general haven't gone up with the cost of living since like 1977 for both men and women. Yeah. Um, I also just think we have in society one view of what a man is supposed to do, what a woman is supposed to do, what their ambition should be, what a life looks like between men and women, like a marriage, traditional marriage, kids, you know, job, you retire, and then you go on cruises and then help raise your grandkids or like, you know, a part of their life. I think so many people want something different that I think if opportunities were opened up, there wouldn't feel, there wouldn't be this feeling from guys, especially like guys that are 18 to 22 doing these shootings of feeling like, what's my role in society? If I can't do this one thing, what am I going to do? Because life is so much more beautiful than like one version of it. Like if you want to go travel the world, or if you want to go, if you never want to get married, if you want to you know, be in a polyamorous polyamorous relationship, like all of these options should be available to men, to men and women equally. But I also think men need more of a realization that they can have a life that's different from the traditional one. Yeah. um, What's your take on it? I think that men should be able to talk about their feelings. Um, But I think there needs to be a certain point too, where it comes off as you don't want to be whiny though. If that makes any sense. Like, I think you should be able to be happy, emotional, but 
don't know. Maybe it's, it's just people are different. So it's, I guess it's case by case. You shouldn't just have a blanket statement for men in general. But. But I wonder if you think it could come across as whiny because they've never talked about their feelings before. Usually, you know what I mean? Like, just like everything, too. I think if this became more normalized, it would have to course correct. So it would go to the extreme where it'd be like men would be super like emotional because they'd be able to talk about their feelings. And then it would even itself out just like any, you know, moment, like any, um, sort of societal change that happens. It's going to, you know, go to one extreme and then come back into the middle. Cause I know like when you mentioned about the crying thing, like I can count on my hands how many times I've cried in my life. Really? That's it. And like, when was the last time you cried? 2012. And that was because what? my my old roommate passed away. And wow. before that, it was nineteen ninety nineteen ninety eight and ninety nine. No, it was later than that. Maybe like two thousand. Had been two thousand before that it was ninety five. And then before that, I think one of the last times I remember crying was like in first grade. And I, re- I distinctly remember this because my dad said somehow it got back to my dad and my dad's like, men don't cry. Or we don't cry. And that just always stuck with me. And like, even like hugging and saying, I love you was very weird for me for like the longest time. Um, Cause you know, like my dad, well, you don't know, but my dad's like a military guy. So there's just like real like structured and like everything was like just hard. Um, But yeah. Yeah, I can so what does your brain go to whenever you think of like something sad or something emotional? Do you just not feel the need to cry or do you think it's maybe been tamped down over time? I just think like I don't nothing's really traumatic happened to me for me to cry. Like and like I said, I, I mentioned, oh, actually, I cried this. It was 2011, too, because uh, I saw a buddy of mine in the hospital and he had like a brain tumor. And seeing him in the hospital made me emotional. But. But do you think maybe it's the mentality that you think you don't have a reason to cry? That's yeah, like, I definitely that's a, don't. A wrong way to think. Because honestly, life is traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> like life is brutal, especially when even if you look at it from an animalistic point of view, like you see an animal in the savanna that's being eaten by a lion. That's brutal. That's like a little microcosm of what human nature, like what being a living mammal on this earth is. Granted, we're the apex predator, but life is tough. Like we, what's this? There's a proverb where it's basically a Buddhist monk is at a wedding and he goes over to the couple and is like, let me give you well wishes. And the well wishes are, um, I hope that your grandparents die and then your parents die and then you die in that order Mm -hmm. the the couple's like what and he's like yes that is the optimal situation if everything else goes according to plan so even if everything goes to plan you will still see the tragedy of you know all of this death so you know your grandparents your parents and then your children watch you die like that is heartbreaking and so that's why i think like I probably cry every other day. Really? And to me, it feels great and good. Oh yeah, I'm I'm probably more emotional than most people, but to me, I I think it's 
in my opinion, I think it's good because it gets that emotion out. And I've never felt bad or wrong for crying because I don't, I don't think anyone should feel bad or wrong for crying. It's a natural response to an emotion. So what was the last thing you cried about? Uh, probably yesterday I was looking at, now I have this horrible thing on my Instagram with the algorithm of dogs that need homes. Mm-hmm. There was a dog that had been in the shelter for a couple years and needed a home. And I cried about it. Um, and to me it felt perfectly reasonable. Like it's really, 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 really sad that dogs don't have homes and they need to be adopted. Now, is this like a blubbering cry or is it just like a tear that comes out of your eye? Uh, just like a couple tears. Nothing major. Yeah. Yeah, like, I, I don't know. It's a different way of looking at it. Like I said, I just, I always just say, like, I don't have a reason to. Like, nothing's really happened to me for me to cry. Yeah, but in my opinion, I think that's part of the issue. Is I think that then all of those little moments build up. And when you do have a reason to cry, you still think there's no reason. And especially for a lot of these guys, they think, well, I have no reason to be upset. But in reality, like being alive in this time and age is hard. Like just life is really hard. You if you feel a reason to cry, you should cry. Hmm. So you would be okay with Well, I know you don't date, but if you did date a man and he was really emotional, that would be okay with you. Yeah, I really don't care. I think it would be weird if he didn't cry. So on your, that's not the norm, but <laughs> so most guys you talk to, they say like what I said, like they can probably recite the last time they cried. Yeah. Yeah. Your answer is like the norm, the standard. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I'm not, I, I, you shouldn't feel bad because that's the whole point of me saying this is like, you shouldn't feel bad either way. I just think like, Crying should always be an option on the table. Yeah, like I always say, like, and it might be wrong to think this way, but like, I guess I don't think there's anything wrong for something if you're crying about something sad that happens, you know, but like mm-hmm. sometimes if people just cry to cry, I don't know. I just don't, that's just not me. That's just not normal to me. It's abnormal, but that's how they live, you know. It's, you know, and one thing for one person is not for everybody. And sometimes yeah, the way absolutely. I think is not the way everybody else should think either. Yeah, but for me, I always like to investigate why do I think the things that I do? What you know, what was instilled in me growing up? What is just nature? What is like evolutionary biology? You know, what is evolutionary psychology? Because I think once we can discern what where something is coming from especially if it's something like a a negative feeling or emotion or like something we're not sure about Mm -hmm. then it 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 just puts everything in your life into more perspective and it starts you know you start to put the pieces together especially with like when you look into how you were raised as a kid like for me when i start to like compare it to other people or like talk about it with my therapist then you start to see like oh this thought process that came from childhood doesn't serve me and doesn't work anymore. And it's not something that's like conducive to being a healthy person. Whereas this other thing, great, this thing works. It comes from a good place. I have a positive connection with it. So I'll keep that thing. Yeah. I'm wondering now, like thinking about it, like if my dad would not have told me that, would I just be crying all the time? 
you very well could have if if you know that wasn't said to you if society was different and you know we can always go down the coulda woulda shoulda route yeah but it is important to yeah look at it empirically and think like what if and you know what i mean sort of like figure out like how often did that thing come into your brain that thought of what your dad said whenever you felt something sad and it sort of rewired the way your natural responses are yeah because i know like when when my roommate uh at the time that that passed away i remember they had told me that he had cancer and obviously i got sad about thinking about it and then there was a time where I think it was his mom or aunt or something was telling me something and I felt the urge to cry, but then I told myself not to cry. And then when he died, I just couldn't control it. Then it just came out. So even then I was, yeah, there was, I was trying to fight it, you know, like even at that, you know, when I, when something like that emotion came over me, I was like, but I was like, no, I guess like I shouldn't be crying. Like, but, if you're sad, why would you not cry? It's weird when you sit yeah. back and think about stuff. Like at the in the moment, I re- distinctly remember telling myself not to cry. Yeah, and you probably didn't think much of it. Like, where is this coming from? Your brain was just like, just don't cry. Wow. Yeah, I. So it's also like some people like what, however, they're. You know what I mean? Whatever's going on, whatever trajectory is happening. Like you may be like, okay, I like not crying. And so I don't want to change it. Mm-hmm. Other people might be like, like, Hmm, let's see, you know, if I cry more, if that is a positive impact in my life. Like, I, I don't know if there's one prescriptive way to live, but I just always think like people should always have autonomous choice making, meaning like their choice really shouldn't be entirely decided upon by society and societal norms. And so like, you might think you have a choice in your mind, but in reality, if your whole life is dictated by these societal norms, really, you don't really have quite of an autonomous choice as you may think. Now, would your friends, the friends you have, do they, would they be okay with a man that cried a lot or would they judge a man that cries a lot? I'm trying to think. I, my friends are all pretty open-minded. I have some more like traditional friends. Like my guess is that my one friend's husband, he probably doesn't cry very much, but like my other friends, I really don't think they would care. Mm. And that's just my opinion. I don't know if that's the actual case or not, but I think, especially like girls my age, I think we're all just trying to be with guys that are just more empathetic. And I often think like guys think women want something we often don't want. Like I, I, we don't want someone that's super stoic and like cold. Like we want somebody that has like a personality and sense of humor and like can be emotional. Hmm. So you think Hollywood has kind of ruined people's mentalities as far as like what a man is? I don't know if it's necessarily like Hollywood on its own per se. I think it's just culture in general. And I think too, there's a always, everything comes back to um, 
you know, a money element. I think stoic men that go to work every day, especially like in the fifties, the, you know, you go to an office or you go to a, a plant and you do your work and you kind of turn yourself off from the emotions and you don't really, you just slowly work up the ladder. You're not really like trying to think or live outside the box because that's what the economy sort of requires for most people to do is to follow rules. Now, could you date a guy that has no ambition or no drive or is a broke guy? Or do you want a guy that has some money and some ambition or some drive or goals? I think money and ambition are two separate things. Um, because ambition could be getting your PhD in like archaeology and that might not make you any money, but yeah. that's ambition. Okay. Um, money could be working for like an emerald mine and, and basically having slaves under you. And I, I don't necessarily call that very ambitious per se. Um, because what you're creating, what you, what you are ambitious about is, is sort of hurting the world. Um, obviously money gives you so much opportunity and, and freedom, Mm -hmm. but I'll be honest, my preference would be being able to be financially sufficient myself. Like I would love, like my dream is to like take care of like my parents, myself, and like be able to treat my siblings to nice vacations. And like, I have a real sense of pride for, for doing it myself. And I think for me, it would feel really fulfilling to prove that I can like sustain myself on my own and truly succeed and like really live a great life that I created financially for myself. Hmm. Yeah. It's weird when you think about, you sit back and you, you know, think about how people are and and the way, why, and the way we do things and the way we, the way we live our lives. I don't know. Yeah. And I think it's layered too. I don't think, I often think the world wants us to believe it's one cause or one thing or one reason that, that dictates everything, but no, it's layers. It's like, um, you know, it's like sedimentary rock building on itself over, you know, millions of years. And you see, you know, the earth carved out and you see all the little lines that build up. That's what society is. It's, it's a bunch of factors that build up over time. And so to make changes, that's why it's hard to like fix things like homelessness or like male suicide rates or things like that, because there are so many factors that go into it and people try to simplify it when it's not really simplifiable. Hmm. And again, this is all, this is all my opinion. I'm not a sociologist, (laughs) but I spend a lot of time. I like, again, one of my favorite hobbies in the world is just like researching and reading. And I love reading like research papers and I read the news every morning and so I really don't watch TV. So what the time people spend watching television, I try to spend like, you know, learning, learning something new every day. Yeah. And, um, I like it because it gives me a better grasp on the world. Cause I used growing up, I used to be really afraid of like not understanding the world. And so now I really try to like change that fear into like understanding why people do what they do understanding our history as humans, why we've evolved to do what we do and, um, and sort of like our effects on our gene, uh, the effects that our genes have on the way we, how we react, how we inherit diseases, what you can do to make yourself healthier. 
I don't know. I feel like it's a worthwhile way to spend my time. Yeah. Like I always think like when people talk about, they don't want to work out or, or like they don't want to better themselves, like, or they don't have time to do these things. I should say like that time is going to pass regardless. And I guarantee you're wasting time doing something that's not beneficial for you that you could use it to be beneficial for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can find or make time if you really want to do something. Like yeah. if you yeah. want to, like I was just talking to my mom, um, cause she wants to like work out more and like lose weight and stuff. And so I was just like, well, if you want, we can, you know, cause the sun rises at six I'm like, we can go for a walk in the mornings at six 50. And, uh, so I think we're going to do that in December is like every morning, you know, go for a walk early in the morning. And like, normally she would be, you know, making coffee at that point, not really like fully up and functional, but you can always find more time. Yeah. So how did you start your podcast or why did you start it? I, you know, it's funny is I don't remember the exact like moment of deciding why, but I'd always thought about it. I enjoy podcasts. Um, I think like most people, I found podcasts through like the comedy podcast world, obviously Joe Rogan. And then I watched your mom's house, Tom Segura, um, Theo Vaughn. And then I watched Tiger Belly and Bad Friends. And so I started in that realm just because I really love stand up comedy in general was like just content to consume. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I like more scientific podcasts, Andrew Huberman, David Sinclair has a podcast about aging. So that, that sort of thing. So I just was like, you know what? Can't hurt to try. My brother said, you know what? You'd be good at podcasting. You like to talk. And then I had a friend that said randomly out of the blue, this was like way before I thought about doing a podcast. She's like, you always talk like you're uh, like you're, uh, doing a voiceover for a TV show or something. She should, just the way she said it was like, you always have this like specific way of talking. And so I was like, huh, maybe I can do this and see if it becomes a thing. And um, I have not put in, I'll admit, I need to be more diligent with it and more organized and more structured. Um, but so far, the response and the experience has been nothing but wonderful. And I'm enjoying the process. So what is an episode like for you? Like, what do you mean? Like recording? Yeah. I, so I've gone in a million different directions. I've done interviews. I've done, um, kind of like a hangout episode. I've done a podcast with my brother and now I'm doing more of like a solo style. So I'll sort of just like try to figure out what's happening in my life at the moment. Um, and have it have sort of a, uh, an overarching theme. And then I sort of end the podcast with like a thought or a quote that sort of sums up everything. So I try to like make it feel documentary is a lofty word, but I try to make it feel almost like it's its own arc. It's its own like genuine episode. Like it feels like rooted and connected. So you feel like, okay, this week was self-discipline. Next week will be depression. The next week will be, you know, maybe I'll do a thing about like, uh, self-control OCD. So it's, it's sort of a little bit of everything. Do you find it easy or hard to do it by yourself? (sighs) It's easier in the way that I don't have to prepare in that. I don't have to do research. I don't have to, I, I do research in that I pull quotes and I sort of write out a little set list of what I'm going to talk about. 
but I don't need to come up with questions for somebody else. I don't need to research somebody else. And it's hard in the fact that you have, you're your own boss. Like you have to show up, you have to, you know, record yourself. You have to kind of keep the conversation flowing with yourself, which can be difficult because it's, it's literally just you. But once you get the ball rolling, then it becomes pretty easy. Um, so, and I'm still, I'm very much still, even though it's been like just over two years, I took a year off in between. Uh, so really it's been a year and some change that I've fully been uploading. Um, it's very much a work in progress. I finally now feel like I'm getting more in, in the zone and getting a routine, but it's a, it's an evolving process. I don't know. What about you? What inspired you? And then what, like, what's the thing you most enjoy about podcasting? What do you uh, like the least? Um, I remember it was like 2017. We were with some friends and we were going to, to a fight somewhere in Mississippi and mm-hmm. we were just having a conversation. And I was just thinking like, this could be a podcast. And then I have a friend of mine, he lived here and then he moved to Florida and then we were talking while he was down there and he's like, man, we should start a podcast. And I was like, I have no idea how to start a podcast, but I've always listened to them. You know, I'm, I've listened to a lot of ones you mentioned. Um, yeah. And then he's like, man, let's just record something over the phone and, and we can figure out uh, what to do from there. And I was like, OK. And then it never came about. And then he moved back here. And. He, he was like, let's let's do that podcast thing we talked about. <laughs> and I was like, OK, let's do it on this day. And he never showed up. And I was like, fuck it, man. Like, I just bought some equipment. I went on, I think, Amazon and I bought some equipment. And I have a friend of mine. His wife has a podcast. And uh, I asked him about, like, how they got their stuff started and, like, what the equipment that I was looking at was a good equipment. He's like, yeah, it's good equipment. And it was, like, right at into 2019 when I launched it. But that was the just the reason because, like I said, I just got tired of talking about doing something and not doing it. You know? oh, isn't that the worst? <laughs> yeah. And then, like I said, when it initially started, it was just Raul and I doing it together. But then I just got frustrated with him because, like, every time I would ask him a question, it was, like, one-word answers or he was, like, mumbling when he's talking. I'm like, man, this is, like, you got to be serious about this shit if you're going to do this with me. So that's when I told him, like, start reaching out to people. That's why he found you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess the my least favorite part of it is, like, the uploading part. Um like I enjoy talking to people because you learn a lot about people and just stuff you didn't know about. Like I always say, you never know how much you don't know until you talk to somebody that knows a lot about something. Oh, isn't it the most humbling feeling in the world? Yeah. I mean, because like people that think they, they're the smartest person in the room are, are the worst type of people, in my opinion. Like they well, say yeah. you're in the wrong room if you're the smartest person in the room. Yeah, but that's an ego thing. That's somebody that has a crazy ego that like needs to be but like fawned over or, or like made to feel special. Yeah. Cause like, even like, I remember seeing this thing and they call it the Dunning Kruger effect where <laughs> dumb people think they're oh, smarter. Yeah. And I know some people like that. It's like, how are you, where do you get this confidence from? <laughs> you are not very bright, but I don't know. But yeah, that's, that's how it started. Like I said, that's my least favorite thing. And my favorite thing is learning uh, stuff. I do not know. Who do you use? Like what's your, uh, upload service i use buzzsprout um to do the audio and then 
I have a, I just have like a, I use a website to transfer over the audio or the video to the audio. And then, um, I upload to YouTube as well, but, um, I don't know if my system is the best system. I don't, to me, I just needed a system. And so I've used Buzzsprout for a while and they're pretty efficient and, um, I like it. What about you? I use Lisbon. Oh, okay. I've heard of that. Do you like it? Yeah, I like it. They have good metrics and it's fairly easy to use. That's the whole thing too, is I think there's such a learning curve with all of this, um, especially all at once, because you need to start like to get a whole episode. You have to have some general knowledge of each sector of, you know, recording, putting up the audio, the video, everything like that. And so like, it just kind of is like, you have to just pick whatever you can see if it works and if it works great. So right now I'm trying to do, I just got a new computer cause my computer finally died on me. And then I have, uh, I bought a nice camera that I never have used yet. And so now I'm like, okay, so now I think I'm going to connect the new computer to the camera, then with some audio system in between, but it's tough because there's a learning curve. So now it's like, I'm adding a whole new thing to what I'm trying to do. So you direct, you'd use, um, your computer to record the audio. I, I used to, now I use, I just use my phone. Um, I have a, a voice recording app. Okay. Um, and the, the audio is cause I was expecting it to be not good. And I was going to use an audio, um, Buzzsprout has an audio mastering service you can use. So I was like, even if it's, even when I recorded, I was like, even if it sounds bad, I'll just, uh, mix the audio and it'll be fine. But on its own, it sounds, uh, pretty decent. Yeah. Granted, I um, had some issues with the microphone plugging it into my phone. It made the audio kind of quiet, but um, it was obviously still functional and probably something more than only I could notice than anybody else. But this stuff is all so tedious. (laughs) And now I'm trying to um, do more. um, So I have a Sober October video that I'm going to do and do more editing and make it more... um, uh, cinematic, if you will. And like, that's a whole nother level of adding in difficulty to what you're trying to do. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people take in consideration what it takes to do this kind of thing. Yeah. It's a lot of your extra time, like that you could be doing for something else, but how long does an episode take from recording to uploading? Roughly how many hours does it take for you guys to do that? It just depends on how many I have already. Um, but I usually like as far as like the editing of it, um, just usually the length of the episode. So however long the episode it okay. takes me to listen to it. And then sometimes I'll take out like pauses or if someone says something they shouldn't say, I'll bleep it or cut it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I generally will put the I use this website called Audiophonic. And it compresses down the MP3. And then I put the theme music in the beginning and front with that, or in the beginning and end with that uh, website. So, I mean, like, because most of our episodes are usually like anywhere from like an hour to two hours. Some have been longer. Um, 
But. Yeah, and you guys are pretty poly- prolific because I was scrolling through earlier today and I listened to, what, two episodes two a week ago, maybe two weeks ago. And you, you're you on the ball with posting. Yeah. Yeah, I do it every um, Tuesday and Friday at midnight. Wow. Because it used to be yeah, just on Friday when I first started doing it. And then I was like, well, I was paying for this hosting. And I'm like... <laughs> I'm not going to just let this go to waste all this extra space that, you know, this, the storage. So I was like, well, let's start doing more episodes. And like, so that's when I started doing every Tuesday and Friday. Cause at first it started doing like a terrible Tuesday movie review thing. But that was mm-hmm. just, it, it just was too much work, man. I just I had to watch a movie that I didn't enjoy watching. And then I had to talk about it and then I'd upload, you know, I was like, oh, fuck this. And I was like, just start getting more people um, to interview. And so that's how it came to about where it's at now. And I think that that's what a lot of it is, is trial and error. So for me, I'm kind of glad that like my brother really encouraged me to just like do it. He's like, just do it with whatever happens. And then you can evolve over time Yeah, because it's that evolution. It's the getting the ball rolling. That is the most important part. So then when I talk to people now and they're like, I want to start a podcast, like I just met up with, um, a family friend and I gave her like a whole cheat sheet on how to start a podcast and like talk to her about it. And I was like, whatever you do, just start. Mm -hmm. It can be totally trash. Not even sound that great, but as long as you're doing the best you can in that moment and you're getting better, you'll acquire people that will listen over time. And the people like seeing an evolution for some from somebody they like seeing somebody start at zero and build up to something else yeah so even if they're watching for that experience they're still watching have you ever looked at your numbers or your map i'm assuming you'll have a map and then you'll see like a place that you've never been to and you're like who the fuck is listening to me there yeah i'm i've hit every continent on the map and i'm like what is happening right now <laughs> yeah. what world do we live in that, you know, we're able, like the world literally is flat. Like we're able to reach, I'm sure you see it too. You're like, wait, how is this possible? And I'm like, especially me, I always think I'm just like some random, you know, I, I kind of grew up in hillbilly town. Like I'm just kind of a hillbilly that, you know, people from like Indonesia are listening to, Yeah, you know? And I'm like, I, I don't know anyone from Indonesia. Yeah, like uh, like I'll look at the the map and I'm like, my voice has been in places I've never been. Like somebody in Belgium listens every single week. I'm like, who That's the so fuck cool. is this person in Belgium? <laughs> and isn't it funny too when you recognize those places over time and you're like, God, I want to know who this person is. Like yeah. I, um, yeah, I have a, a following in Oregon. I have like <laughs> my top four places are in Oregon, and I'm like. I've never been to Oregon. I don't know anyone in Oregon. It's fucking beautiful so, there. I know. I'm, my brother was just saying he wants to go to Bend. And I'm like, I know. I um, I fractured my ankle, but once it's better, I want to do. They have a really cool uh, like uh, ultra marathon in Oregon that I want to do. But yeah, it's, it's, it's so weird. It is very. The internet has changed the game for good and bad. Um, because like without the internet, we wouldn't have this conversation right now. Yeah. And that's why every time I talk to really cool people and have such a great conversation, it makes my disdain for the internet go down a little bit. Cause I'm like, (laughs) there's so much bad about it, but there's also so much great connection. I've met 
now really close friends through the internet. I've met um, clients of mine through the internet. Um, so for me, I've gotten so much out of it that I can't hate it with such a visceral hatred that I used to have when it was just like me whining about Instagram. Yeah. Now, do you curate your feed more? So you don't have to to. see a lot of the, the shit. I, so I have different, so I do, um, a lot of social media management and stuff like that for a living. So I have to have a very intricate relationship with social media, but I also put up a lot of barriers and a lot of boundaries. Mm -hmm. So my personal feed, I mute a lot of people. So I don't unfollow old friends or anything like that. I just mute people so that I don't hurt anyone's feelings Yeah, Um, because people do get their feelings hurt from that stuff, which I was surprised about. Um, And so that feed is probably like the least curated, but I go on my own personal account, probably the least now. And then I run a local um, government page that I do um, uh, work with. And then we're actually, actually going to start probably a podcast and blog for that as well. That's hyper curated. That's just business. And then I have a blog that I, that's on hiatus that I want to get back into. That's very curated. And then my podcast, um, Instagram that I'm on the most is, I would say probably curated 90% to be mostly positive things, things related that I, people that I want to follow that are like, you know, inspirations, that sort of thing. Um, and that's the one I'm on the most. And so there's really nothing that I see on my own, on this podcast feed that is really anything that would make me feel bad about myself or, you know, bum me out in any way, except for like when I see dogs that don't have homes and I cry. But other than that, (laughs) it's pretty, pretty curated. And so, but that takes time and it takes you realizing like what can upset you and what can't like, what about for you? Like, do you have like for your personal, do you have it curated as as well? Yeah. Yeah. I don't try to follow anything that I don't want to see. And stuff that takes away your time. Because for me, I fall down rabbit holes of like, um, like shopping stuff on Instagram that I'll like, I'll start going down that rabbit hole. And I'm like, oh my God, it's been an hour and I've wasted all this time. Skincare Instagram is a big thing for me where I just look at people's products that they use. It sounds silly, but like if I fall down that rabbit hole, I'll be scrolling for hours. And I try to do with all of my you know, sort of like maintenance for social media accounts for either my personal, my projects or like work related. I try to spend an hour in the morning doing all of that. And then I'm done. Mm. So that way there's no reason for me to get back on unless there's like a DM or something pressing, you know, like something reasonable. Now on the page that you manage, do you get a lot of hate? Does the page get a lot of hate from people? Um, not really. I mean, uh, politics can always be tricky. So like I've, there's this one guy that spams me all the time with memes. And then he get he goes like, let's just have, I just want to have a conversation. And I'm like, well, we're not going to have a conversation if you're just sending me memes. Um, but I'm pretty, that's, I'm pretty thick skinned when it comes to that, because it's like, I've entered into that like local government community space. So what you're going to get with that is going to be drama and you know what I mean? Like that sort of thing. 
So it hasn't been too much, but I think especially when we start doing, you know, a podcast and we start doing the blog and interacting more with the community, because we want to make it more of like, how can we better the community, like local zoning laws, that sort of thing. Um, school board issues, basically just making the community like a cleaner, happier place with more parks and that sort of thing. Um, but still there'll be people that will create drama for that. And so I'm, I'm anticipating that. Yeah. So how did you get started in that kind of work? Totally by accident. I, um, I started by randomly during, so I've, I've always been a writer and I've done, you know, random freelancing writing gigs. Like I do admission, admissions papers for colleges, medical schools, uh, law programs, PhD programs. I've done resumes for people. Um, I would edit, um, academic papers and book chapters for people. So basically I would just pick up writing work when it came through. Um, but I randomly DM'd, I was just on Instagram and I was just following this one influencer. And I, I had recently found out that my family was part Armenian and she was Armenian. So I just DM'd her and said, it's so cool to see you like doing stuff with your culture. Just found out I'm part Armenian, blah, blah, blah. And then we started talking and she said she needed someone to do social media, uh, stuff for her, like help create content. And then I sent her a packet of stuff. I like writing stuff I'd done. And then we started working together. And then I started doing other jobs in that sphere. Once so again, again the, all the, the, internet. Of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, right so there. It, it was a good, happy accident. And I think it worked out in my favor. Um, you know, I think sometimes you go, you end up on the path you're supposed to take. Yeah. So for me, I feel like it took a, I shouldn't be really doing resumes for people. I shouldn't be, doing admissions papers. Was it great? And it paid the bills. Yeah, sure. Was it fun? I really got to see, I got to help hundreds of people get into academic programs. And that was really fulfilling seeing that. Sure. But it wasn't me doing anything I had any real passion for. Mm -hmm. And so I started once I realized like, Oh, social media can be a thing. And then I can help somebody else do it. And then I can do it for myself and then create, hopefully, um, you know, with the various projects that I'm doing, I can pull back from my freelance work and then just work on my own projects. Yeah, that's awesome. That is really cool that it all just started from a DM. Yeah. I mean, for me, and I am so not that person. I am not a reacher outer. I am not a, I think it was because it was during the pandemic. And I think we were all, our brains were all so broken and we all needed like human connection. And so I think something in me that day was just like, oh, I just need to DM somebody and talk to them. Even if they don't even get back to me, it'll feel like a conversation. And it worked. And I even ended up, um, I flew out to LA and we ended up meeting in person. Really? Yeah. Yeah. She's super cool. And, uh, yeah. So again, the internet strikes again. <laughs> Do you think a lot of people don't realize the power of social media, like these businesses or these people that are like, have a pro a presence online, not have like a presence online? Oh yeah. I think a lot of like, <laughs> I call them boomer businesses. Like a lot of them don't comprehend what they're missing out on. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, like my brother, I actually got him into, so my brother works just corporate for a bank. And so he has a really great job and he doesn't need side gigs, but he loves making extra money. And, um, 
he started managing a social media account from um, a company in Detroit. And so now he's teaching this company how important social media is. And they're so old school that they're slowly coming around to it. But yeah, I think you're leaving a lot of money and connection to a community on the table when you don't do social media. On the flip side, there's a ton of responsibility that comes with managing social media responsibly and saying the right things and knowing that words have consequences. Sure, you can say whatever you want, but you might make somebody angry and they might not use your business because you you have to realize that like you're reaching the entire world potentially with what you're saying. Have you seen like some of the tweets that some of these companies are sending out now? Like I think Tampax sent one out or something recently. Were uh, those the ones that were fake? Were they fake? There were so after um, the whole Twitter debacle with Elon Musk, they had piloted their program where they were doing eight dollar check marks. Mm-hmm. So all these people were buying fake verification and like. I know the Eli Lilly one was we're giving away free insulin now. Yeah, I do remember <laughs> so, hearing that one. Yeah, so, well, what was the Tampax one? I don't let, know if that was. Let me see if I can it? pull it up. Okay. Let's see. What do you think about the whole Twitter thing that's going on now? Uh, I I am not a fan of Elon Musk. Um, I think he's been falling upwards for a long time, especially when you look at sort of his trajectory with business and how most of his businesses have been subsidized by the government. And the Hyperloop was basically to avoid actual public transportation. And his father came from Emerald Mine Wealth. And so when you look into it, I'm not a fan of him as a person. Yeah. Um, I also don't think he realizes how much Twitter is a global power and how world leaders um, like use their service to DM people and how important protection is for that. And I don't know if he knows about what he's gotten himself into. Yeah, it uh, it seems like a shit show over there right now. I think I think it's it doesn't it's like a dumpster fire. I don't know. I think that man it it just seems like he's a big troll. Um he's promised people a lot of stuff that he hasn't even delivered for his own companies. So how are you going to deliver something on something new? Like I know he's supposed to come out with a roadster it hasn't come out. He hadn't delivered that cyber truck and then people are basically like crowdfunding it seemed but they I think they had to pay like 100 bucks to get a down payment on the car. Uh I don't know. To me it just if it was anything else, everybody would think it's like a Ponzi scheme or a bamboozler. But for him, it just seems like uh, people just think he's the second coming of Jesus. Well, I think we all want, again, sorry about all this rain. Um, I think we all want somebody to be like a savior, mm-hmm. you know, and I think a lot of people look at him as a savior. Because like even like he'll manipulate the crypto market by tweeting about something. Like that Dogecoin, like, come on, there. what value does that coin have? But then people are putting well, all this money into it because this guy's tweeting about it. But that's most of crypto and I think most of the market as well. When you look into it, when you realize like so much of the market is just influenced by what's happening in the world, like it's also arbitrary. 
So I think it's showing the frailty of the stock market as well. Yeah, it's very odd. But I, I, yeah, I think we're going to be, I think we were in um, sort of like the unregulated, you know, sort of hellscape of crypto. And now I think we're going to migrate into a lot of regulation, especially with the whole FTX um basically ponzi scheme yeah that guy that kid was like a, a a scammer and he fooled so many people i mean he fooled a ton of like um youtubers that do finance because they all sponsored uh they all did sponsorships with the company like it was a, a pretty widespread scam yeah, it's, I don't know, man. I, I, there's always going to be people that are looking to take advantage of people, unfortunately. And it just seems like that's oh, the next gold happen. rush right now is the crypto space of doing that. But the, I looked yeah. it up. That tweet is real. <laughs> okay, this is the tweet. Okay, what is it? You're in their DMs. We're in them. We are not the same. And Ew. then they even came back and they said, we messed up with our last tweet. We removed it and we apologize to everyone we offended. Respect is our central <laughs> respect is central to our brand values. Our recent language did not reflect that. We have learned from this and we will do better. <laughs> like, why yeah, do like, you think that's a good thing to tweet, man? Because I think they're trying to be like, I'm sure somebody on their social media branding side was like, it'll be funny. Everyone will get it. And they they missed the mark do i think it's like the end of the world no to me i'm like ugh, not that funny but also kind of funny move on there'll yeah. be some mom in minnesota that will be like crying over it and going oh my god <laughs> what if little timmy read it he's eight and it's like well he shouldn't be on twitter yeah that's that's like i don't know to me i call that like puritanical values like america was founded on them we're always going to have them unless we make a major change Everyone is so like, oh my God, you can't say this. You can't say that. You can't joke about this. You can't joke about that. But then those same people will be the the ones that are like, you know, going to strip clubs, like a dad that'll go to a strip club and like, you know, have affairs all the time. It's like, you can't, you can't, you know, be against something verbally and then, you know, kind of be like a, a pervert, you know, in, in secret. Like, what do you think about how they demonize sex workers on Instagram and all these other platforms? Like, yeah, if they're I'm like very... that, you can't show your nipples for a female, but a male can do it. But we're n- none of us are born with clothes. Yeah, but that's that's an ingrained culture thing. I don't. I personally don't care. Um, I don't want to see naked people when I'm eating at a restaurant. So I don't want to see a shirtless man or woman when I'm eating. Yeah. But like I new to speeches, I don't care. I don't care if people do sex work. I'm very pro as long as it's somebody doing it on their own volition, their own free will, and they're getting all their income and it's fair. And I even think it should be unionized. I'm very pro sex work because it's not going to go away. And if you think it's going to go away, you you're living in another planet because there will there will always be porn there will always be sex work it's, it's just how it is you know it's like that i'm not religious but it's like the whole like jesus in the bible was hanging out with the prostitutes yeah it's been around for forever do you think prostitution should be legalized i think it should be decriminalized i semantics are you know 
Yeah. I mean, I guess I do legalize. Yeah. Because I, it's going to happen anyway. I think it should be highly regulated just like anything that could go very wrong. I think it should be regulated. And I think it should be regulated in that it benefits the workers. Like in that it should, there should be major unions. It should be, you know, above board. Uh, Pimping shouldn't be an option. Um, if there are brothels, there's, you know, the, the women should have, a, you know, an equal say, you know, in, in their living arrangements and those sorts of things. But I'm not in, in that world enough to know, like, the ins and outs of, you know, what sec- sex workers want, what's lacking in the industry, that sort of thing. Because I saw that they say there's a lot of men now that are sexless and that they are virgins up until their 20s and late 20s and some in their 30s. So I'm wondering if they could go to this kind of outlet, would that be something? Because say like they're just not appeasing to some women. These women just don't find these guys appeasing or they don't know how to talk to women possibly. So if they could go to a service, I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah, like you said, if it's consensual. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that would help with the... Often when men commit violence, it is connected to the fact that they feel like they don't have women's attention or they can't get women's attention. Mm -hmm. So I do think that that would reduce it. Um, Again, yeah, it would just have to be regulated. It would have to be like, I don't know if it was someone like Harvey Weinstein character. You know what I mean? Because they say he was like very deformed. Um, the, The girl would have to be like totally consenting to it, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I I don't think people should be judged for doing OnlyFans. I don't think sex work is bad or makes you bad. I but I'm also I know a lot of people that are very anti-sex work. They think OnlyFans is like, "Oh my god, you're going to be tainted forever." And it's like, "Well, for that person they they don't care, but for you, that means sex work isn't for you." Sex work isn't for me because it's just something that I don't have any desire to do. Yeah. It's just something that I, I think you do have to be passionate and interested in it. And for me, it just seems like a lot of, a lot of work. Granted, the OnlyFans money is, is good money, but I don't know how long that much money is going to last in that industry. Yeah. The bottoms are going to fall out eventually, I would imagine. Yeah, and I wonder how I wonder how the tax structure works for that sort of thing. I wonder how fees are going to shift. I know that OnlyFans talked about getting rid of the uh, sex workers f- as a platform mm-hmm. for a while. They they changed their mind because they realized that's the only thing people use OnlyFans for. But yeah, I I my whole thing is I don't think anyone should ever put all their eggs in one basket. If you're doing something that's more creative, more out of the box, if I would give if advice to a girl like that, I would say, make sure you're doing something else with your money. Get some real estate, open a business, put money in a, a you know, a couple different savings accounts. Like really make sure if this goes under, you have a safety net because you probably won't be able to get another like quote unquote real job because there'll be a stigma behind it. Yeah. And then you got to take in consideration, like say your health goes or you get in a car accident or something happens to your looks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, there will, there will always be some sort of porn that is very 
open to anything, which yeah. is always interesting. So the, I have a feeling there will always be a niche, but yeah, you might not be able to bring in that, you know, six figure, seven figure income from sex work. Like you used to, if something happens or just like even age. True. I mean, exactly. You have a window of time. Yeah. There was porn stars that were the main ones in the, you know, back in the day that no one probably wants to jerk off to now. Exactly. And they had their window of time and they probably only got paid one-time fees or maybe residuals for movies, but now they're probably not getting any more money. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird, um, it's a weird thing. Like we've had a couple of only fans people on here, but, mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Like I said, I think it is a, a little opportunity, like a small window. It's kind of like an athlete. Um, mm -hmm. You have a, a little bit of time that you can, get as much as you possibly can. And I think some people, when they get that kind of money, they just blow it. They don't, like you said, they're not investing it. Well, yeah, especially if you come from a background of not having any money. Like if I would have gotten money at any time, probably before this year, I probably would have blown it all. Yeah. Maybe I would have had a house that I would have bought. So I, you know, at least I'd have some equity in something, but yeah, money when you don't really grow up with, with it and you don't learn how to manage it can can sometimes wreck your life like i had a cousin that uh, his father died uh, from a medical malpractice and they got money and i would say money was probably the worst thing for them to get because it ruined their life and it wasn't managed properly and they blew it all and it's it's almost like it would have been better maybe if he would have had to grow up without some of that, that comfort with the money, because, you know, now any job for him is like, he's like, why would I work for 18 bucks an hour at a pizza shop when, you know, I could do this sort of like kind of shady job and make more money, or I'm used to getting so much money a month without ever having to do any work. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely appreciate so, something more when you have to work for it, I think. Yeah. And sometimes my brain tells me like, oh, I want to be nice if I just won the lottery or did that. But I, I like the feeling of knowing that what comes to me is, is because of the work I'm putting out. And especially now, like I'm, I'm working on a book. And so ideally like publishing the book, I'd like to make money from it, hopefully a good amount of money. Um, but like that feeling of satisfaction of knowing I literally created something from my brain from zero and then made it into a tangible product. And then it makes me money to buy a house or, you know, travel around Europe for an extended period of time, something like that. That is so much better than just like having money appear from thin air. Yeah. What's your book about? It's called Death in the Time of Suburbia and five girls get into a car accident their senior year. And only one survives. And it's all set in the hospital that night the accident happens with flashbacks. And so you sort of have to figure out throughout the book who survives. And then like all these like sort of secrets um, about the families come out and then sort of commentary on suburban society and sort of like, you know, commentary on religion, um, men's suicide, um, how girls are treated in society, um, that sort of thing. And so how long is it going to take you to complete it? Do you think? I'm so I just got 
um, edits back from two test readers. I went through the edits. And so I, I'm hoping that first quarter of 2023, it should be out and, you know, out, out on Amazon, out through Barnes and Noble, if I can get that as a, as a, um, you know, distributor. And then I want to record the audiobook. So hopefully first quarter, 2023. I look forward to seeing this. Thank you. I'm hoping it all, I'm hoping it's well received. It's a little controversial. It's very dark. Um, but yeah, it's something I'm really passionate about. And I, I like to create a story that has more of a, a lesson to be learned on top of it, like a social commentary, something that's meaningful, something that makes you think. And my whole thing is I don't want you to think the way I think. I want you to either resonate with one character or how the other character is living their lives, like the traditional lifestyle or the more counterculture lifestyle. But either way, there'll be something for a reader to connect with. So what are some of your other hobbies or goals or passions? Um, I, so my ideal goal would be to work in the entertainment industry in writing scripts and then creating them, directing that sort of thing. I have one pilot episode script for another concept. And then I have two other concepts that I've been working on that I need to really flesh out. Um, so that would be my ideal goal. Um, and then obviously making the podcast, um, truly be able to stand on its own two feet and be successful and kind of have its own voice. Really. I need to find out like what exactly I'm saying. Um, and then, yeah, I, I kind and then I, I also want to write a play at some point. That's always been a goal of mine. Um, I really enjoy reading plays and I think it'd be so cool to write a play. And that's something that's a little more out of my comfort zone when it comes to writing. But for me, I would love to just be able to work entirely in the entertainment industry and be self-sustaining and be financially comfortable and successful and tell stories that interest people and make change the way people look at the world. Mm. You got a lot going on. <laughs> I try. Yeah. And I mean, normally when I'm not doing that, I, um, I love running. Um, I'm injured right now, but like, I want to get back to it ASAP. Um, I like hiking. I like being outdoors. I like reading. I try to read for like an hour a day. Um, I like old architecture. Um, so I had my real estate license at one point and I realized I hated real estate, but I love looking at old houses and fixing them up. I think that would be an amazing thing. Once I can get some cash and capital buying an old property to fix up. Um, yeah, I, I sort of like seeing whatever I naturally flow to and then go from there. Yeah. So like when you do your podcast or have you done other people's podcasts or do you have other podcasters on yours to do cross promotion? Um, so I think I want to get to in 2023, I want to maybe start doing interviews again. Once I have, I think I need to figure out what exact questions I want to ask people and what direction I want to go in with interviews, because I do like talking to people. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been on two other podcasts. Um, they've gone well, really great conversations. 
Um, I sort of just go on when people reach out to me. So, so I'm not like, you know, if the opportunity arises, I'll say, yeah. And I check them out and it's, a, I feel like it's a good match. And I feel like I could bring something to the table for them because the worst thing is you don't want to show up. And it's just like, there's not much. I, if I can't offer them much, it's like, what's the point? It has to be like reciprocal thing, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, like I said, I'm really in a crossroads right now of what direction I want to go into. And I, so the last podcast I was on, I was talking to someone and they're basically like, you know, you need to figure out who you are as a person when you're doing podcasting, like a persona and like almost like your heightened version of you. And so I was like, oh, that's a really interesting concept. So like now I'm trying to think of like, what like layers to myself do I want to build to really create like a full fledged, almost like character, like caricature of me and almost have it be like literally a persona. And so I'm trying to pull from inspiration and then I'm going to make an episode about it because I think when you see people that are really successful at podcasting at what they do, it's really is a persona. It's, it's a version of them. And they're so good at it because a lot of them are, are in the entertainment industry or like for me, I see a lot of comedians. They, they do it naturally. And you know, if you're just a lay person going about the world, you really don't put on a persona per se to that level because you don't need to. Yeah. Cause like the perfect example of one of the people you mentioned would be Bobby Lee. Exa- yep. <laughs> he has such a, specific character it's still him but it's heightened he has an aesthetic and a look to him that's very him everything about him is him and so i think you can sort of create that for yourself at a very at warp speed if you're really doing the work on creating what your persona is so i'm trying to like layer like what characters inspire me like eras aesthetics um that sort of thing. So you're creating like a multi-leveled person that's still you. It's just like you on acid. Mm. Yeah. Like I love him. He is so hilarious to me, but like if he's not on bad friends or tiger belly, I don't tune in. How come? I don't know. I just, I just think he, he makes those two shows. I don't think the show, well, I definitely don't think anybody would really listen to Tiger Belly if it was just Kalila. Me personally. Oh, I don't. Yeah, I don't think it would be the same show at all anyway. Yeah, and especially with the whole Brendan Schaub thing. Um, <laughs> that, so wild. That yeah. de- detonated everything. I know. How about this? Ironically, um, there was a, a time period where Brendan Schaub was liking all my Instagram stories. Was he really? <laughs> I'm like, what the hell is happening right now? Because my brother uh he he follows the the podcast world too and like that whole thing and like i sent him a screenshot and he's like he's like do you does he follow you how do you i was like what is going he's like what's going on i'm like out of the blue he just started liking on my instagram stories so i was like this is hysterical (laughs) but yeah i don't i i know i so i don't think i don't know i i have seen bobby lee on Lex Friedman's show. Yeah. Um, that was a pretty good episode. And I've seen him on a few others. And I think it all depends on the energy the hosts give off. And I think he plays with that. He either becomes, it works and they bounce off of each other, or 
it just becomes weird because mm-hmm. they won't play along and then it's then it feels weird yeah so i do agree that i do think he has to have a very specific energy to bounce off of and andrew santino was like such a good energy like the good cop bad cop <laughs> yeah yeah like i said he is definitely one of my favorite people to watch and listen to he just yeah, has like it, the best it, stories man like he there's one story he told about like i think he was in like uh, somewhere i can't remember but he w- he was trying to buy a prostitute and uh it's just the way he tells a story he's just a good storyteller i don't know but he's an interesting yeah, man he and i think too when you your survival mechanism is a sense of humor mm-hmm. you will be invincible when it comes to telling stories and jokes and i also think not a lot of people in regular life are good storytellers yeah so i think you are a good storyteller or a good storyteller and remotely funny you stand out because most people are pretty well accepted in their social circle and so they have no real reason to be funny or entertaining because it's not a survival need for them so what do you think about the whole thing that People say that women are not funny because of that fact. Yeah, that's, I think for comedian, female comedians, I think that comes across because they're often pigeonholed in doing the whole sex dating comedy. Mm -hmm. So to me, I personally don't find that sense of humor, especially with women, super funny. It feels very one note. It feels like, it also feels very like you have to be able to do that whenever you're young and pretty. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a limit of it. And when you're older and you're a woman doing that comedy, it's not funny. Yeah. Um, so I think if, if women, sh- female comedians shifted from that or like made it less like, Oh, men do this. Women do this. I think it would change the dynamic. And I think women, it's harder for women to make it in comedy because it is still kind of a boys club so i think you are getting the women that are sticking it out and i do think it's a it's often like a cultural thing like i think sometimes a lot of men just don't want to find women funny Mm. like it's almost like maybe a little threatening because like often being funny is kind of like a man thing. And so like if a woman can hold her own and really be assertive and funny and that sort of thing, like it can come across as maybe threatening. I don't think it's always like that, but I think sometimes. Well, would you say that I guess maybe a guy chooses to, or not chooses to be funny, but uses humor to maybe attract women and women generally get attraction regardless of if they're funny or not. Oh, absolutely. And I think men often, I'm generalizing here, like to be like the funny one in the dynamic Mm -hmm. or like the gregarious one in the dynamic. So I think sometimes it can be tough when a woman maybe is considered to be overstepping her boundaries by being the funny one, the gregarious one. The I know I've had that experience where a lot of guys find me to be too much because I enjoy riffing and doing co- like the, you know, bits with people in comedy and like they'll see me 
eventually they'll see me as like a friend or a buddy. Mm-hmm. But if I'm ever in the situation where it's potential like dating mate thing, they find that quality in me very gross. Mm. And so I've seen it myself. And so that's like, for me, that's always a red flag in a guy. If a guy finds me as threatening when I'm doing a joke or being like very like friendly in a social circle or like gregarious or like, you know, loud, outgoing, whatever, not being annoying. Cause I, I know when I'm annoying and I'll, I'll call myself out for it. But if I'm just being like regular, you know, doing bits with friends and if he doesn't like it, then that's not somebody that I want to be with. Yeah. Because I'm not here to play this push and pull of what's threatening, what's not. Like, I'm more masculine as a girl. I have more of a masculine energy, I think. And so a guy will automatically be not into it or respond well to it. So I I sort of can, I'm able to see that more because I'm like a less traditional girl. Hmm. Yeah, that's... I don't know. Like, I always just think that, like, when you go back and just think about, like, humor, um, is that, like, is that a big attraction for women, which is, or in your case, for a guy to be funny over good looking? Um, yeah. I mean, I also think sense of humor makes somebody more good looking. Yeah. I think good looking is often, like, just taken as, like, general appearance good looking is like it's basically like you you in in animation so it's like you laughing you do you know what i mean like good good looking is an amalgamation of things it's not just like you stand it like a polaroid photo of you Mm -hmm. because at, at least in my opinion and for most girls that i'm friends with like also good looking i guys i think have a view of themselves as what they think good looking is what girls want yeah. and we have a very different idea of what good looking is like also for me like specifically i like more like jewish looking guys like bigger nose like a nick kroll looking guy um and so you would maybe as like just general aesthetics, look at a guy like that and be like, he's not ugly, but he's not like, you know, Channing Tatum or something. Whereas for me, I look at Channing Tatum as sort of like trailer park hot. Like <laughs> what? he's like the hot guy at the trailer park with a wife beater. Oh, wow. Like absurdly good looking for a window of time. But like, for me, I look at, age like how your bone structure will age if you have a bigger nose higher cheekbones you're you're gonna age really well a guy like that he puts on 10 pounds 15 pounds you know he's not a celebrity yeah he's not gonna look so good so it's also he's not my type so you would maybe be like of course that guy's every girl's type Mm -hmm. for me no like we all like girls have such a more nuanced appreciation of looks that I think like a lot of guys, especially like the incel community does not seem to comprehend. Like not everybody wants a Chad <laughs> for lack of a better term. Yeah. So what about like everybody just generally says like the epitome of good looking is like Brad Pitt. Yeah. I feel like he follows like the golden ratio law though, which is like the law of aesthetics by having like a very symmetrical face. 
um, there are people that are just, I guess like now on the other side, Angelina Jolie, like genetically gifted to the point of like, yeah, of course. But I'll be honest, like is if I didn't know he was famous and like, if you said like these care, uh, aesthetic features, like I'm not really into blonde hair cause I already have blonde hair. And in my opinion, I think two people with blonde hair gives very like Aryan race vibes. <laughs> it's not my thing. Okay. So, <laughs> but again, some other people would be like, Oh my God, like I have blonde hair. Like I just want to date a guy with blonde hair for me. Not my thing. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Like it is weird when you hear people talk and how women think than versus men. Um, so that's why why more men and women need to have conversations so they could stop just thinking that it's their way or the highway of thinking. Absolutely. And I I have a lot of guy friends and I enjoy hanging out with guys simply because they give off a different dynamic than girls do. Like sometimes I like to just like riff and be silly and hang out with guys and like I don't know. I it's just a different vibe. Yeah. And yeah, I think if you don't if as a girl, if you don't experience that a lot and vice versa, you're going to look at the opposite sex as this weird, mysterious thing, like a monolith, like mm. all guys do this, all girls do this. And it's like, no, we're human beings. If you were an alien that came down and just met me as a girl, you would not be getting at all the full spectrum of what it means to be uh, a woman because I'm not traditional in any sense. But that's like the prime example. We're not all monoliths. We're not all one version and we shouldn't be. And I think the more the world opens up and men are allowed to be more emotional and women can be a little bit more like cutthroat and a little bit have more of a little bit more of like a masculine energy and men with more of a feminine energy. I think the world is going to become such a better place because we'll all get to be like our best selves. I like that. Uh, yeah. What do you have like a quote or a, um, what was the other thing you said you do on your podcast? I usually end with like a quote or like a, you know, from a, a book or a movie or like just in general that, I, that sort of sums up the, like the episode. Do you have something you would like to read or recite? Mm, I don't see on top of my head, but one, one thing that I had, talk to somebody about recently because someone was asking me for advice about what they should do after college and like the overarching theme for me was the one thing you can't get back is time mm -hmm. that's probably the advice i like to give the most to people and the thing that i live by the most is the one thing you just cannot get back is time you can always make more money you can always uh pivot your life you can always go back to school you can always do these different things but you have to make sure that you're making a conscientious choice with with how you're spending your time because it's non non uh returnable yeah and so yeah, that, yeah that's 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 that popped in my mind it's been a common theme for this weekend like i talked to my buddy ben corliss oh, i did a podcast with him yesterday mm -hmm. and that was one of the things he's like just look this stuff on your table and that's all time that took to get there like you spent time to get that money to buy the stuff on the table. And exactly. It's like, fuck man. When you think about it, when you start breaking stuff down to like micro levels, it's like, Oh, what am I doing with it my all life? Back to time. 
Yeah. yeah but the, you know, it's also the one thing you can't get back. Um, or no, what's the other one is the time will pass anyway. Yeah. So if you want to do something, just do it. Cause mm-hmm. it's going to go by anyway. Like that week will feel like nothing. That month will feel like nothing. And then you'll look back and you'll be so proud of yourself with whatever you did. So usually I would ask uh, the question, um, what are your, what's your advice to people? But you already did that. So my other thing would be, what mark do you see yourself leaving on the world? Mm. Um, I, let's see. I hope that I was a safe space for people to come to, like if they need something, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's advice or tough love or like a meal or anything. Um, Cause I always try to ask like, what could I give to somebody else that I needed when I was that age or that point or that, ex- that moment, whatever. Um, and then obviously I'd like to make the world more empathetic. I think if we paid attention even 1% more to other people's feelings not coddling people, but just paying attention and listening to them. I think the world would be a really wonderful place. That's, that is so true. That <laughs> yeah, so sad, true. but true. Yeah. Another thing I would like to ask is, what do you think happens when we die? Mm. Um, well, I don't know. But I'd like to think that we, whatever does happen feels good and it feels like complete. And then I also hope we start over again. I hope we're reincarnated and get to continue making this place better because I can't imagine anything else being any more interesting or fun. Yeah. And like I said, I think a lot of us take it for granted. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I also think a lot of people are either living thinking that they're not they're they're going to be living for like a future life in heaven or something mm-hmm. or, or like, you know, or they will get a second chance here or something. And and that's why I say we don't know because yeah. really all that there is is this flesh suit this body you're in now and making the best of it. Anything else, who the hell knows and who the hell cares? <laughs> yeah. And who would you like to give flowers to? Like who in your life would you like to give appreciation to? Because I noticed that like a lot of us don't say enough good things about people while they're here. And like you mentioned, we don't know if you can hear once you're gone. Um, mm-hmm. So who in your current life or just anybody in general, would you like to give appreciation or flowers to? Huh. Interesting. I guess there's so many people I could say, but to me, I'd rather give them to a stranger. Mm. Anyone I walk past, just you can see in somebody's face when they seem like they have a bad day. So I would say a stranger. Yeah, because you never know how that act of kindness could spark their day for the better. Yeah, and every time... I've had someone, a stranger, do something nice for me. You remember it. And it feels different. Because everyone in my life, I think I try to do a really good job of like 
telling people like what they mean to me. Mm-hmm. So I almost feel like it would be a redundant thing to say, you know, give you this. Let me give it to somebody else that might not get it. Does that make sense? No, that does. No, that definitely makes sense. Yeah, because like uh, I saw something that I need to start implementing in my life. I saw this guy said that like every day he reaches out to three people and says something good to them just to start their day. And like uh, just imagine how that might change their day because some people will get on their phone or they'll get a text from somebody that something bad happened or whatever. But if you got something good every day said to you. You know, at first it might become off a of kind of weird, but if it's just a habit that you, you know, you form, then it's not weird. And if everybody started doing that, then more people would probably feel better about their lives. Exactly. And it wouldn't be weird at all. Yeah. That's why I think sometimes we look at compliment, like giving a compliment, you think like, oh, that would be weird if I said that to a stranger or said that to somebody. It's like, mm, no, if somebody takes that weird, that's weird for them to act like that because yeah. most people love to get a compliment or hear something good about themselves. Actually, that was brought up yesterday too. How do you deal with compliments? Oh, I used to be the worst at getting compliments. I used to like be self-deprecating until I realized I used to think it was the good way to get receive compliments until someone was like, finally said to me like that. That's so rude when you do that. Like it negates what the person wants to do, which is make you feel good. Yeah. Um, so now I just say, that's so nice of you. Thank you. And like, enjoy it. I used to feel like gross about enjoying it. Um, I would always ex- receive them, but I used to feel gross about it. But then I realized like, who am I to think I'm not deserving of receiving a compliment? If someone genuinely feels that way. Great. And even though they're saying it just to be nice. Okay. They're saying it to be nice. Who cares? Yeah. Cause a guy yesterday, he was like, um, you know, somebody was like, because he did the same thing about the self-deprecating thing. And somebody's like, mm-hmm. somebody took, you know, put themselves out there to say something nice to you, man. Like, just take it. Like, say thank you at the very least. Yeah. Exactly. And I think sometimes we think we're burdening people by being nice to ourselves. And it's like, <laughs> no, I, I I think we're all just like little, little uh, birds with broken wings that are just kind of like trying to like, grow up after being kicked out of the nest mm. and so if we all just looked at each other as more of like damaged like sort of beings that we're all we all don't know what we're doing then i don't know i think we'd like be less intense about everything and less like worried like oh my god what are people thinking about me it's like who cares yeah everybody has their shit yeah most people do not care about you like they care about you as like I want you to be alive and functional, but like when someone's walking down the street and you trip and fall and like, but you don't hurt yourself and you just kind of stumble and get, you know, keep going. Mm-hmm. They're not laughing at you. They don't care. They're going to go off and go have lunch with a family member, or do something that that is actually important in their day. Yeah. I was talking to somebody on Thursday and they were saying that like, if you look at a baby and you look at how, like, how does a baby go from a baby to like Dahmer? Because they're, they're talking about starting like a true crime podcast or something like that. But it's just mm-hmm. like, what are all these little steps to, to take for these people to get to the way they're at? Yeah. I mean, I might suggest, I don't know if you've ever heard of this on YouTube. It's called Soft White Underbelly. Uh-uh. It's a guy that interviews um, people that are homeless um, on Skid Row. 
And it gives you so much empathy for someone you might just think is just another homeless person is like, oh, all the boundless, endless trauma that they've been through. You're not frustrated with them anymore. You just want to help them. Mm-hmm. And so I think if everybody watched that YouTube channel, you would be like, oh my God, it's, they were all just kids that were abused or molested or had, were raised by people with addiction problems. And they just needed the tools to be a good grown up, and they didn't get them. And that's not fair to them. And it doesn't make them a bad person. It just puts them in a shitty situation. And it's called what now? Soft white underbelly. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's in, you'll. Oh, it's such a good podcast interview show. I mean, he was a photographer for Apple for a long time, and then left his job because he wanted to make a difference. And now he does this. Mm, that sounds like a beautiful thing. Yeah, it sounds like I, th- I have a feeling you'd really enjoy it. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, I've enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, where can everybody yeah, find you wonderful. at? Uh, at the happiest sad person podcast on Instagram. Same for YouTube. Um, my personal Instagram, Alessandra Catherine Sophia. Um, and then, yeah, when my book comes out, Death in the Time of Suburbia, check it out in the uh, first quarter of 2023. You'll have to come back when your book comes out. We'll have to do it again. 100%. And when I start doing uh, interviews, I'd love for you to come on. Yeah, it sounds good. I, I've never been on the podcast before, so it'd be my first. I'll say that for my first one. Okay, I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah, I had I had no qualms about uh, coming on today because I, I checked out some of your, like I said, your podcast. I was like, yeah, you guys have a good vibe. Appreciate that. I really do. Absolutely. And then let me know whenever uh, this comes up so I can do promo and stuff. Okay, yeah. Uh... <laughs> Let me see. Probably next Friday I'll have this one released. But I'll let you know. I'll let you know for sure. But Yeah, yeah, I'll let you know. I'll DM you. Perfect. Well, this this has been just wonderful. And again, I I love the trajectory of the conversation. You're a you're a really good interviewer. I appreciate that. Yeah. We'll keep in touch. Yeah, most definitely. Enjoy your Sunday. Thank you. I know. I got to go do fun errands like run to the bank. Exciting stuff. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll talk to you. Talk to you soon. All right. All right. Bye. Bye.